I'd like to help us revisit the scripture that we heard just a moment ago from 1 Corinthians, and I'd like to put a little context around it. To do that, I, I could give you bullet points from the commentaries I read, bullet points on the uh, socioeconomic situation in first century Corinth, on geography or cultural history, but instead I'd like to tell you a story. And I freely admit I made this one up. I'd like to tell you about two men named Caius and Claudius. Caius keeps coming to the meetings, to the get-togethers, though he can't really tell you what makes it all worth the bother. Every Sunday night as he gets off work, because there's no weekend in first century Corinth, he prepares to leave the docks and he argues with his feet over which direction they should go. On the one foot, the shortest route would be to go home to a little stuccoed room that he owns down near the docks. He could just head there to his clean, spare room alongside thousands of others built for the day laborers. He might visit the courtyard fires, catch up on the gossip, sing a few of the drinking songs, and toss some dice. He could go home from there because he's a simple man and simply satisfied. But instead, every seventh day, Caius talks his feet into going inland to the party at the big house on the hill where things are considerably more complicated. And that's Paul's fault. Caius can remember how it all got started two years ago when he was in the marketplace and he heard this guy Paul preaching and somehow he knew without even knowing how that every word Paul was saying was true, that God was loving and was present and was aching to restore something that had gone wrong in the world. And when Paul announced that God had made it right, that God had given his own son and that the son had conquered every failing, even death, through his son Jesus and that new creation was possible and present, well, Caius could remember shoving through the crowd, through the market day crowd, just to get up there and ask Paul, where is this new creation you're talking about? And he remembers Paul pointing to a group of people off to the side who came and met him and hugged him and kissed him and invited him up to Titus Justice's house, the biggest house up there on the hill, biggest house he'd ever been in. And Caius remembers what it felt like when Prissa and Aquila pushed him under the water and then lifted him up with strong hands. And that crowd of people in the house, slaves and patrons, employees, servants, workers, men, women, they all shouted, hallelujah. And Paul said, here is the new creation. For this one is in Christ. And he knew that it was all true. But that was two years ago. And Paul moved and took Prissa and Aquila with him. And it still feels good to sing. Still feels good to pitch in a little bit of money or a little bit of time whenever there's a need. But those feelings are less and less able to make up for sore feet and lost hours of sleep. And least of all can they cover up for the awkwardness. Because let's be honest, it's a little awkward to keep coming over to a house like Titus Justice's when you live down at the docks. 
When he walks in tonight, Caius knows that Titus Justus will already be talking to Claudius. Claudius, who doesn't have a boss and who lives in this part of town and doesn't always have to show up an hour late. And they're going to invite Caius into the conversation, but he doesn't know who they're talking about. And they offer to pray with Caius. And they offer him the same holy cup that they have used to remember Jesus. But at the point that Caius arrives, there's always just a little bit left at the bottom of that cup. And when the full supper begins, they move into the dining rooms. And Claudius and Titus Justus go sit at the high table so that all the guests there who are of high status won't feel offended, won't feel that they are being snubbed. And Caius gets it. People need to feel welcome. They need to have their status honored or else they won't join the church. And we need to grow the church. Caius gets that, but the ritual still leaves him at the entry hall table with all the other boat carriers where they tell the same jokes and sing the same songs that they could be telling around a campfire. And afterwards, they go back to the porch so that the preacher can make a nice try of it one more time. And Caius wanders out obediently. But tonight, something is different. Tonight, there is a buzz in the crowd. People are saying that Paul has written a letter and that Titus Justice is going to read it. And as everybody pushes forward to hear, straining to listen to these words from Paul, the press of the flesh leaning into the words reminds Caius of what it was like two years ago. The crush jostles him about and in it he, he sticks out a hand for support and finds himself just stuck there. Leaning with one hand on the shoulder of a neighbor, he barely notices that that neighbor is Claudius. And to be honest, Claudius doesn't really notice either. He doesn't notice a whole lot at this point when he comes to church. That's one of the things he likes most about Sundays. That the worship service is where he doesn't have to be the most important person in the room. The prayer and the ritual and the friendliness of the whole thing feel as worn in and comfortable as broken in sandals. You see, everywhere else that Claudius goes, he's the patron. He's got this civic duty to the city government. But when he comes here, it's the one place where he doesn't feel responsible for everyone else around, for his family, for servants, for employees. That's why he signed up for this little kingdom. This little alternate universe where he can almost believe that he doesn't have to be in charge of everything. It feels good. Just like it feels good to Claudius to sing every once in a while. To pitch in a little bit of money when folks need some help. Or maybe pitch in some time. But mostly it feels really good to be a part of this big retreat. This moment we can step out of time. Claudius likes to get there early to mingle and catch up with everybody, to soak in the peacefulness and soak in a bit of the cup as well. He nods when the preachers talk about changing the world, proclaiming good news to others and all of that, but it doesn't quite excite him like it used to. Claudius doesn't need miracles or revolutions. It's enough for him that this gathering exists. It's enough for him to join with his fellow man and woman 
to feel their hands on his shoulders now as the preacher steps up to read a few words from their old friend Paul. And here come the words of comfort, as Paul says. Your meetings, your beautiful, precious worship, it's killing you. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, says Paul. For when you are eating, some of you make it your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. And for those who eat and drink without noticing the body of Christ, the church, Paul continues, you eat and drink judgment on yourselves. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home. So that when you meet, it will not result in your judgment. And then Paul sums it up by saying, When I come, there will be further directions. Which sounds ominous. I don't know about you. But I certainly do not like to hear that worship can do us more harm than good. That is not what I come to my Bible to read. And let's be clear, Paul thinks that continuing on in worship, even bad worship, is better than giving up on it altogether. And yet, Paul says that in our worship there is a latent threat. Because Paul says that worship is like food and it is like drink to us. We don't just need worship, but we are built to enjoy it, to derive an elemental satisfaction from it. But like food and like drink, it can corrode our bodies and our souls if it is used badly or pursued only for its own sake. See, our worship, Paul says, is not an act of escape or diversion, but it is an act of remembering. And if we get it wrong, then it becomes a dismembering. And here you thought that the opposite of remembering was forgetting. But what does forgetting do? It separates us, cuts us off, severed from our connection to others and even to our own story. Who would we be if we lived without memory? Cut off from yesterday and the day before and everyone that was in it. That's the fear that haunts us when we have outlived our friends, when we start a new job, we find a new home. How can we belong with people who aren't in any of our favorite stories? How can they belong with us if we aren't in any of theirs? That's the fear that haunts our present sense that it is getting harder and harder to love our neighbors. It's not that we actively hate our neighbors, right? We don't wish them harm. It's just that we find it easier and easier simply not to know them. Even if we take the radical step of learning their names, we find that we have fewer memories in common than we used to. Seems as though every five years brings a new micro-generation that grows up with an entirely set of different set of experiences than the folks who were born five years before them or those born five years after. And the world has become like this giant church where everybody gets their own individual pew and nobody ever has to go visit the others. Digital distance has replaced the press of shoulders. 
And we find it hard to imagine that we belong to one another. So we find it hard to belong at all. And so the Apostle Paul speaks to us this morning, just as he spoke to a church in Corinth where the people had very little in common. Paul speaks to us, not in his own words, but in the words of Jesus when he says, what I received from Christ, I have handed on to you. But of course, Paul never heard Jesus say these words. Never heard Jesus describe the Last Supper. Paul was not at that first Last Supper. Now Paul only knows what's going on at communion because somebody told him. Someone who remembered and passed it on to him. Paul cannot tell the story of his faith without telling the story of somebody else's. And I've come to believe that that is as good a definition of love as any other. Love is not a warm feeling towards someone. It's not even hoping the best for them or hoping they don't get hurt. But love is when we cannot tell our story without telling someone else's. Ever since I married Jennifer, all my stories include her. Even if it's only to say, well, Jennifer was out that weekend. When I join a church, I'm saying, y'all are going to be in all the stories of my faith. That's love. It's the insistence on telling someone else's story every time we tell our own. Do you remember? When we had turned away and our love failed, how God refused to write us out of the story, refused to tell his story without us. Do you remember how he entangled his story with us? Do you remember how God became a member of humanity? Do you remember that we cannot tell the story of God without telling the story of Jesus and what he has given us? Do you remember? If we can come to belong in each other's stories, and if we can come to belong in God's, then I hope you won't mind me telling a story that is not my own. It's a story I heard from another preacher whom I've never met, not Paul, but a different one, but another preacher who took the time to write it down so that it can become ours as well. This preacher was talking about visiting his mom, and he said, my mother, like the church building, is not what she used to be. Since her last stroke, dementia frequently overwhelms her. But often, something trivial will break through the clouds and she'll cling to it by talking about it over and over. At one point, she stood behind her walker and offered a well-rehearsed one-minute speech. She said, I love you and I pray for you. She said it several times. And then she offered some bad theology about how God keeps a scorebook that records every time we say we'll pray for someone and we do not. These days, the meaning of faith appears to be slipping away from her. When she goes into Bible teacher mode, she doesn't make a lot of sense. Her inspiration from Jesus, from her guilt, and even her cardiologist's advice, it all gets tangled up into the gospel. And the only message that comes through clearly is her broken heart. 
over the years as a pastor, I've lost track of how many times I have taken communion to people with some form of dementia. It's not that different from when a congregation vows in a worship service to hold the faith for an infant that was just baptized. We are waiting for the child to grow into belief. And at the other end of life, we're receiving the faith back from those whose memories are too worn out to hold their belief. The memory of Christ can never be contained by the mental capacity of its members. So sometimes the community of faith holds the memories, remembers us, and remembers for us. I know you're curious about Caius and Claudius, wondering if I forgot them. Paul's letter goes on for quite a bit after this, but I suspect Claudius and Caius didn't really notice because they had noticed each other. And they remembered what worship used to be. And they realized why the spiritual buzz always wore off by Tuesday. And why the church never seemed to have quite the power equal to what they thought it should have. The power to demonstrate unexplainable interventions and transformations worked by God. Caius and Claudius looked at one another and for the first time in a long time, they saw the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Christ knows the odds are stacked against us. Money and time and body chemistry and shame, technology and pride, they all tear at us, privatizing our faith, dismembering the very body of Christ. And so Christ warns us, commands us, pleads with us. Do this. Remember me. And we are remembered. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.